Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you, and enjoy the following message. Rights were at the very heart of the American Revolution. And because they were at the heart of the American Revolution, they were also at the heart of our country and its founding. When our forefathers declared independence from England, they wrote these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our forefathers agreed that there are certain rights that are unalienable, that they are given to us by God and that no one can take them away. But to secure those rights, many would have to willingly lay down their rights, their rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And not just their rights, but their very lives in order that others might enjoy those rights in the future. Last semester, we covered the first half of 1 Corinthians in our series called Messy Church. You may recall that the Apostle Paul was the one who brought the gospel to Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece, and he remained there preaching and teaching and living his life as an example among them for 18 months. Short time after he left, a couple years later, he learned that the church there was experiencing significant challenges and difficulties. There were questions about his apostleship, divisions over preachers, sexual immorality, legal battles, unhealthy marriages, abuse of Christian freedom, confusion about worship, and doubts about the resurrection of Jesus, just to name a few. The Corinthian church was messy. And because every church is made up of sinners who have been justified by grace and through faith and are in the process of being sanctified and becoming more like Jesus, every single church is messy. Thankfully, God is in the business of transforming messy churches into beautiful displays of his own glory. Today we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul is going to defend his apostleship, and he's going to explain the choices that he's made regarding his own rights. And I want to leave you today with a question. Are you willing to lay down your rights for the sake of the gospel? Let's take a look at the text now, beginning in verse 1. Paul begins by asking this question, am I not free? From the context, it seems that there were some people in the Corinthian church who were saying that if Paul really was an authoritative apostle, a commissioned messenger of Jesus Christ, then he would take advantage 
of all of the rights that go with a prestigious position like that. Because you see, in their minds, if you're someone important, if you're a big-time traveling speaker, then you naturally demand to be taken care of. You demand your rights. And ironically, it seems the fact that Paul didn't act like every other greedy, fame-seeking, traveling nomad was a problem for them. It's like you can't win. Having his authority questioned, especially by this group of people that he had poured so much time and effort and energy into for a year and a half and continues to minister to from afar through his letters, having his authority questioned must have been very hurtful, very hard for him. And so in this section, what he does is defend both his apostleship, the fact that he is a commissioned messenger of Jesus Christ, and the choices that he's made about his rights and why he chooses to exercise them or not. So he starts with his apostleship. He asks, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? In fact, Paul had seen Jesus the Lord. He interacted with him face to face on the road to Damascus. And seeing the risen Christ is a prerequisite for anyone claiming to be an apostle. Every apostle commissioned by Jesus saw him resurrected, spoke with him, interacted with him. That's why we refer to them specifically as witnesses. They are witnesses of the resurrection. And then he asks this, take a look there. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul brought the gospel to Corinth. He was the instrument that God used to bring the Corinthians to repentance and faith, and he planted their church. And so even if other people didn't look at him as an apostle, he says, surely you guys regard me as an apostle. You are the seal. You are the proof. You are what is the demonstration that my apostleship is genuine. The fact that you are here as believers, that your church is here. You're the seal of my apostleship. A lot of you know Steve Spurrier. Steve Spurrier is probably better known these days from the Dr. Pepper commercials. But believe it or not, he had a very illustrious athletic career. He won the Heisman Trophy in the, at the University of Florida in the 1960s. And a few decades later, he became the head coach of the University of Florida's football team. During his tenure, they won eight SEC East division titles, six SEC championships, and one national championship. He left Florida in the early 2000s to go to the NFL, and a few coaches later, they were in search of his replacement. So the athletic director reached out to Steve Spurrier and asked him if he'd like to apply for the job opening. Spurrier, who is the king of one-liners, said, apply, go look in the trophy case. <laughs> and he hung up the phone. <laughs> this is the same deal with Paul. I mean, to those questioning his authority as an apostle, he's like, go look in the trophy case. Go look in the mirror. 
You are the seal of my apostleship. I am the one that the Lord used to bring the gospel to you. You all are trophies of his grace that came to you through me. What further proof of my apostleship do you need? So he defends his apostleship in those ways. And now he moves on to defending his choices about his rights. First in verse four, he asks this question. Do we, that is he and Barnabas, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Now it seems to be referring to hospitality. Because see, back in those days, hotels, motels, those kinds of things, they weren't really in existence. There were inns, but there were very few of them. They were usually just large houses that people had converted. And so when people traveled, they stayed with family members or friends or whoever would put them up. And so traveling orators would often go and stay in the home of a wealthy person. And that wealthy person would ensure that they had food and drink. They had a place to stay for as long as they were in town. And remember, this is a long time ago. You didn't travel to some place, fly a plane, stay there overnight, you know, and go back home. You often stayed for weeks or months at a time. And so they would provide these traveling orators with all of the hospitality that they needed. And so Paul's point here is, of course, of course they have the right to hospitality. That was just common culture. That was just the common cultural practice. But beyond that, look at what Jesus writes in Matthew chapter 10. He tells the disciples before he sent them out, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Second, he asked this question in verse five. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Now, we know from the scripture that Paul was not married. And whether Barnabas was married or not, it seems very clear he must not have brought his wife on their missionary journeys. But all of the other apostles, including Jesus' half-brothers and including Cephas, that is Peter, they all traveled with their wives. That's totally understandable. They were gone for weeks and months, even years at a time. It's totally understandable, but what that means is that when those families put them up, you can put a single guy on the floor or on the couch. That's fine. You can't do that with a married couple. They have to provide them their own room. There's another mouth to feed. Paul's point is that they are not even asking for that kind of hospitality that all of the other apostles were taking advantage of. His point is, of course, they have a right, if they wanted to, to bring a believing wife along with them. All the other apostles, the half-brothers of Jesus, even Peter, did this. Third, and finally, he asks, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Clearly, the other apostles were no longer working in secular employment. Matthew is no longer collecting taxes. Peter is no longer supporting himself and his family with fishing. All of those other apostles were supported by the generosity of local churches who considered their ministry so worthwhile that they would fund them, just as Jesus' earthly ministry was largely funded by several wealthy women. 
who were very generous with what they had. But Paul and Barnabas, they didn't accept this kind of support from the Corinthians. They did accept support from other churches, but they took nothing from the Corinthians. Instead, they worked hard at their trades. They worked hard all day, and then during their free time, they preached the gospel. They taught the church. They met with and counseled people. And so Paul asks this string of questions in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? The answer, of course, is no one. Nobody pays to join the military. Nobody goes to the market and buys their own fruit or milk that they could have just simply taken for free. Paul's point is, of course they have the right to refrain from working for a living. After all, Jesus said in all of the Gospels that the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul drives home the point now in verses 8 through 10. Take a look at what he says. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25 here to show that the Mosaic law teaches these principles. You shall not muzzle an ox when treading out the grain. And Paul says, look, God is not primarily concerned about oxen. Now, if you're an animal person, I don't want you to get worried. There are plenty of Old Testament scriptures that talk about the fact that God's people are required to humanely treat their animals. What Paul is talking about here is he's making a lesser to greater argument. He's saying that if even animals must be allowed to eat from their work, then surely human beings who are created in the very image and likeness of God, surely they should be able to eat from or benefit from their work. That's what the lesser to greater argument is showing. And here's the climax, verse 11 and 12. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? His question borders on sarcasm. Is it too much? They have made eternal investments into these people. They have traveled at the risk of their very lives, being beaten and imprisoned and at risk the entire way. They have traveled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles back in the first century to bring the gospel to these people. They stayed for 18 months preaching and teaching and modeling what it looks like to live the Christian life. They have spent themselves for the gospel. And so Paul says, look, if we have sown spiritual things that are eternal in nature and eternal in value, is it really too much if we were to ask you for material things? Things that will just simply pass away? 
He's not arguing that the other apostles shouldn't be taking advantage of those rights. He knows that they have made those kinds of investments too. He's simply saying that if other apostles have the right to be financially supported by a church like theirs to reap material things from them, then of course he and Barnabas certainly have that right as well after all they've invested, after all they've given. So in this section, what Paul is doing is he's laying out his case. They're saying, if you're really an authoritative apostle, why don't you take advantage of these rights? This is what everybody in authority does. And Paul's saying, we have a right to do any of those things. But now let's pick up in the second half of verse 12 and see what happens. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You see, friends, for Paul, this is what it all came down to. In previous sections, he's making this eloquent, well-reasoned support for him using and exercising his rights. He says the Old Testament scripture backs that up. The teachings of Jesus back that up. Normal human practice backs that up. And yet, he and Barnabas chose not to take advantage of their rights because they would rather endure anything than put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of the gospel. You see, friends, Christians who are concerned about living for Christ are relatively unconcerned about exercising their own rights. Paul and Barnabas were most definitely concerned about living for Christ. They wanted to know him and they wanted to make him known. They had the right to receive the kind of financial support that Paul is describing because that was just the normal practice for the first century. But you have to understand that being compensated in those ways also muddied the waters quite a bit. They didn't want anybody thinking that the only reason they came to Corinth and brought the message of Jesus was so that they could financially prosper. They didn't want anybody thinking that they were being driven by greed and a desire to be famous. They also didn't want to take advantage of hospitality because a lot of the wealthy people that would put up itinerant speakers, they would have some control over what was said, what could be taught. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, look, we will gladly lay down our rights to all of those things if it means that you won't have to question our motives and why we're here and if it means that nobody can tell us you can't say that kind of thing. They were glad to lay down their rights for the sake of the gospel. I'm concerned about the state of the American church and many professing believers in Jesus Christ because I don't think that many of us have this same perspective, have the same conviction as Paul does here. I'm concerned that we've just simply adopted the spirits of the age 
which says, nobody will stop me from exercising my rights. See, if you've been raised in America, we've been marinated in that culture of rights. And this culture of rights is a very good thing on the whole, especially when you think about other countries where people don't even have basic human rights protected. That's a very good thing. But there are side effects with that too, aren't there? There are side effects to being steeped in a culture of rights because even as believers, we are tempted to say, I want my rights at any cost because that's what I deserve. Those are mine. So many of us don't bother to ask, what's best for the non-Christians around me? What's best for the newer believers around me? The only question that we ask is, what's best for me? What are my rights? And so I want to ask you the question, are there some rights that you're simply unwilling to lay down, even for the sake of the gospel? Mark Dever preached on this book a number of years ago at his church, and his sermons became a book called 12 Challenges That Churches Face. I want you to look at this quote. He says, perhaps you are reconsidering your rights to your career, your money, certain circumstances in your marriage, your requirement of a spouse, your use of alcohol, or spending so much time traveling on weekends that your church cannot be built on you as it should be. Opportunities to minister fall to others, to those who will give themselves away for the sake of others and for the glory of of God. Paul and Barnabas were doing no small thing in laying down their right to be compensated for their long and faithful ministry in Corinth. And as he goes on to note in verses 13 and 14, even the temple workers back in the Old Testament times, they were compensated out of the temple offerings. Just like the soldier, just like the farmer, just like the shepherd, it was only fair that they received their pay from what they did. And Jesus himself commanded that those who proclaimed the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Why is that? Well, friends, it's because that frees gospel workers up to devote their full time and energy and attention to gospel ministry. When gospel ministers are not fully supported, what that means is they have to find other work outside of the church or outside of ministry to make ends meet. And that means their full time and energy and focus can't be on preaching and teaching and ministering and counseling and doing all of the things that ministry requires. So Jesus says that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel, not so that gospel workers can become rich, but so they can be fully focused on the ministry that is before them. And I am so thankful that the members of our church consider that to be so important that they not only fully support me and my family, but two other pastors and their families and two other full-time staff members as well so that we can fully focus on equipping you to make disciples. That is a great blessing 
And that's something that you should be commended for. But look what Paul says in verse 15. He reminds us again, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. See, not only was Paul laying down his right to be compensated, he wants to be clear that he wasn't writing to get them to start compensating him. This is not some kind of a guilt trip. In fact, Paul emphatically states that he does not want to be compensated. Why? Because he views himself as a steward who has been entrusted with a commission. God is the one who called him to be an apostle. Paul did not apply for that job. God is the one who gave him the gospel to go and proclaim to the Gentiles. He sees himself as a steward who is simply obeying his command, who is simply discharging his duties. And so his reward, as he says, is to offer the gospel free of charge, to freely offer the free gift of eternal life. Paul was glad to receive financial support from other churches filled with mature believers. If you read 2 Corinthians, you'll see that that happened even here in Corinth. If you read the book of Philippians and other epistles, it's clear he was happy to receive support from other places, but Paul never wanted to burden non-Christians or new Christians with any financial responsibility so that there was no question as to his motives so that there was no question as to whether he could say or not say certain things, if he was just being paid to say certain things. He wanted their minds and their consciences to be free, and so he would endure anything rather than put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Friends, laying down our rights does not come naturally to any of us. In fact, what comes naturally is seeking our own rights. I want you to take a look at 2 Timothy 3 on the screen. Look at what Paul wrote. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. In this long list of characteristics that makes the last days difficult... The first thing that Paul says that's going to be difficult about living in this time between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return is that people are going to be lovers of self. Now, when you love yourself, you seek your own interests. You don't seek the interests of Christ. You don't seek the interests of others. Lovers of self are those who insist upon their own rights. And loving ourselves is what comes naturally to all of us because every one of us was born with a sinful heart. A sinful heart that leads us to exalt ourselves above God and above others. And that's why we need a savior. And so it's significant that when Paul talks about the savior in Philippians chapter two, he puts it in these terms. Take a look at the screen. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. If you are here today and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to consider the one who is much more than a good person, much more than a good teacher. I invite you to consider the one who proved, not just by his claims, but by his sinless and miraculous life, to be the only begotten Son of God. I invite you to consider the one who laid down all of his rights and then laid down his very own life so that you could be forgiven and reconciled to God. I invite you to turn from your sin today, to receive Jesus and his work and his life, death, and resurrection by faith and to be welcomed into the open arms of a loving father. And if you're already a follower of Jesus and you look at your life and you look at this text in Philippians 2 and you see selfishness, you see a self-centeredness that makes it hard to count others more significant than yourselves, that makes it hard to look out for the interests of others, I want you to remember that according to God's word, you have the mind of Christ you have the mind of Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can lay down your rights just as Jesus did and count others more significant than yourself. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can endure anything rather than place an obstacle in the way of the gospel. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not just that you can do these things, it's that you and I must do these things. We must do these things like Paul and Barnabas. We have to lay down our rights for the sake of non-Christians and for the sake of newer believers. The only question that remains is, will we? Will we lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel? Let's pray. Our Father, we confess to you that laying down our rights comes very hard to all of us. We're taught from an early age in our culture that not only do we have rights, but that we have to exercise them. We don't hear a lot, especially today, about laying down our rights for the good of others. And so God, we pray this morning that you would help us just as you helped Paul and Barnabas to lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel, that people could hear the message of Jesus without any obstacles in their way 
because we have willingly laid down our rights for people like them. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for speaking so clearly to us through it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net.